0: I wore this shirt in light of the fact that Junko would be singing about my home island, for those of you who don't know, from the Big Island. In fact, I've been up Mauna Kea before. I've heard God speak to me in the wind. He said, move to Orange County, become a youth director in Irvine. I don't know. It just just happened. Um, So I'm really excited, actually, to introduce... A dear friend of mine, in just a moment he's going to come up, his name is Patrick Anthony, him and I have um, gone to school together at Talbot. In fact, we graduated together, we went through the same program, the spiritual formation program. Um, We got to even walk together, we sat side by side and walked together to get our diplomas. So lots of fun memories of this guy, Um, his wife Anne and his two kids are here. Um, He works at a church in Orange, Trinity, Presbyterian, and um, he speaks there, but he took um, a week off to come speak with us, and so if you all could give him a nice warm welcome, Patrick Anthony. He must have seen that I was tall. Well, I'm very excited to be with you. I'd actually prepared a, a presentation to introduce myself, but Ben basically covered everything. So um, it's, always, it's always good to kind of have some context for the guest speaker, so they're not just some random person up there speaking to you and talking to you about the Word of God. So uh, his introduction was awesome, so I'm just going to pray. Okay, so let's bow our heads. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, God, we come to you this morning and uh, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've blessed us with uh, a community to gather, to worship you, to know each other, to live life together. Uh, We thank you for the awesome music that we got to hear this morning, God, where we could worship you. Uh, We thank you for the words of, of those songs, God, and how rich and meaningful they are to us. And, um, and they're, and they're that way because of what you've done for us, God. And, and thank you for enabling us to recognize that. I pray for anyone here who might not know you, God, that they would see the glory of your son this morning, that he would be on display, and that you would reveal him to us in even deeper ways, and that we would want to know him. We'd want to, to follow after him, to chase after him, to lay everything aside and sprint after him, God. So I pray that you would magnify yourself this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you are familiar with the uh, social media website, Instagram? Go ahead, raise your hands. Okay, about less than half, maybe. Okay, well, so Instagram... I will tell you about Instagram, okay? Instagram... I don't even have an Instagram account. My wife does, but I know about it. So Instagram is this website where you primarily post pictures, right? But they're not just ordinary pictures. You can add a border to them. You can put a filter on them. And all of a sudden, your ordinary life becomes extraordinary. I read this article recently, it was called The Agony of Instagram. <laughs> yeah. And what it talked about was there's these haves and the have-nots of Instagram, right? There's the people who go to Paris, post their filtered photo of Paris, and their life looks wonderful and, you know, inconceivable. And then there are other people who look at these photos and actually experience acute emotional pain. They, they, they envy so desperately the lives that they see lived through the filter of Instagram, and so the article, he comes to the end and he says, unless 150 million users decide to go off Instagram cold turkey in mass, Instagram envy may turn out to be an epidemic with no cure. It's a little bit of hyperbole there, but I think what's so fascinating about it is never once does the author suggest that we have an envy problem. The problem is Instagram. Instagram, in my mind, is just a benign website where you post pictures and you can kind of like make them pop a little bit. But for him, he sees this as, as, as making people's lives look so extraordinary that it causes other people to envy. And in our passage today, we see the same dichotomy. We see the Pharisees who think we have, a, we have an Instagram problem. And we see Jesus who says, no, 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 we have an envy problem. So if you want to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 7... We're going to look at verses 1 through 30, so I'm not going to read everything right now because it's kind of long. Um, But just to give you guys some context for the book of Mark, uh, the book of Mark is is the fast-paced gospel. So Jesus shows up on the scene, God, the heavens open up, Jesus gets baptized, God comes and says, this is my son in who I'm well pleased Next thing you know, Jesus is is casting out demons. He's healing people. He's in conflict with the Pharisees. All this stuff is going on, and it's happening quick, 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 quick. And we basically see two questions that run on parallel tracks through the book of Mark. The first question is, who is this guy, right? Because he's got innate authority. He's got innate power. And so he's coming in conflict with with the social powers of the day, right? But the other question is, where's all this going? Because we see this conflict, and we think to ourselves, Something's got to happen. Something's got to come to a head eventually. And in our passage today, the conflict is just heightened. We see it just kind of come into a little bit clearer focus because obviously we know the end. Jesus is God. He dies for our sins. Okay? But in our passage today, we see it heightened. So the Pharisees, they, they see in our passage today, they see Jesus' disciples and they're eating and they haven't washed their hands. And the Pharisees say, hey, Jesus, why are you letting your disciples eat without washing their hands? You know what the traditions of the elders are. And Jesus says, hey, hey, you guys made up all those traditions. In fact, those traditions actually subvert the commands of God. Not only that, but the real issue has nothing to do with what, what makes you dirty on the outside. Because all that does is go into your body and come right out. What makes us unclean is what's already there. It's the envy inside us, right? We have an envy problem, not an Instagram problem, you see? I've also included the story of the Syrophoenician woman, because I think, I think, uh, and we'll get to it, but, but what we see with her life actually sheds so much light on the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, and how we can understand that for our own Christian walks, okay? So, three points, and you can kind of fill them in on your outline if you're taking notes right now. The, the main points are, the first one is, what is at the heart of the law? When we sift down to the bottom of the law, what do we find? What do we discover staring back at us? What is the law's purpose? What is its goal? Okay. Point number two is what is at the heart of man? What, what is at the core of us? What is our core need? What is the core issue that must be dealt with? And finally, the last point, the heart of the Syrophoenician woman. And for those of you struggling to spell Syrophoenician, <laughs> allow me to assist you. S-Y-R-O-P-H-O-E. N-I-C-I-A-N. So what, it, what do we see about her? What, it, what, is, what is at her heart that actually sheds light on the heart of the law and the heart of God? Okay. So first point, the heart of the law. What is at the heart of the law? Have you ever wondered that? What is, when you sift down in it, what is its purpose? What is its goal? Well, in this passage, we see two perspectives on that. We see the Pharisee's perspective, and we see Jesus' perspective. Okay. So point A on your outline, the Pharisees believed... That the law reveals God, who he is, his character, and what is pleasing to him. The Pharisees believe that the law reveals God, who he is, his character, and what is pleasing to him. And doesn't that sound right to you? Aren't you thinking, I think that. I don't see a problem with that. The Pharisees believe that. I believe that. Well, let me tell you something else the Pharisees believed. See, the Pharisees believed that they were already God's people. They didn't believe that they had to obey the law in order to earn their position with god they already believed it in fact let me use the let me use a christian term they believed they were saved by grace how is that possible how can how can the pharisees believe that the law reveals god and that they're saved by grace and and then be wrong well here's what they did they switched the ends with the means right so the the end of the law is just to know god that's the end to, to know his character to know him. and John it says, this is eternal life that you may know God. That's the end. And they had used that as the means, the means to blessing, the means to a living a moral life, which resulted in earthly blessing. Okay, so they had flipped that. Um, and, and it kind of makes sense too, right? If you go back to Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, uh, you know, Moses tells this... In Deuteronomy, they just come out of Egypt, right? They spend 40 years in the wilderness. They're going into the promised land. And, and, and Moses says, hey, when you guys go into the promised land, if you obey all these rules, you obey all these laws, it will go well for you. If you disobey all these laws, it will not go well for you, right? So it's like, they're not crazy for thinking that. They're thinking, all right, well, I want to obey the laws and that's because I want it to go well for me. And then what happens? They go into the land. They disobey all the laws. And it goes terrible for them, Right? The uh, northern kingdom, uh, the Assyrians come and drag them off. The southern kingdom, the Babylonians come and drag them off. And the Jews are sitting there in Babylon Babylon, thinking to themselves, we're his chosen people. How could this have happened? They're scratching their heads and they go back and they start reading the law and they read where it says, if you obey all these commands, it will go well for you. And if you don't, it won't. And they thought, huh, that's it. We're going to obey all the rules. And so they got back into the promised land, they rebuilt the temple, and they were dedicated to obeying all the rules. Like, there's no way you're going to get them to not obey the rules. In fact, if somebody even suggests that we don't obey all the rules, that's an issue because for them what it meant was God's dis- displeasure and their society crumbling. That, that's what's going on for the Pharisees here in our passage. So um, now we're into the text. So verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating with food or eating food with hands that were defiled that is unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace they do not eat unless they wash and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So what are these traditions of the elders? So, if you go back to the Old Testament, you have the law, right? The first five books of the, of the Old Testament, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the written law, okay? Now, if you're somebody who is really dedicated to obeying a strict, literal obedience of this law, the problem is, some of those laws are a little bit confusing. They're a little bit ambiguous. So, what they did is they sort of erected this scaffolding around the law. They called it the tradition of the elders. They actually believed that this was oral tradition handed down from Moses. So it is every bit as authoritative as the law written down by Moses. Okay? And so, for example, this hand-washing thing. In Exodus 30, it says, priests are supposed to wash their hands prior to going up to to the altar to offer sacrifice to God. So if you extrapolate that out into the scaffolding around the law, you think if it's good enough for the priest, it's good enough for everybody all the time. Right? Especially if what your goal is is a strict, literal obedience to the law in order to be morally upright in order to obtain the blessing. Okay, are you with me? Next, Jesus says, So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replies, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. Why? Because... Because they missed the purpose of the law, which was to know me. And they had had switched that and made it the means of the law. To be obedient in order to obtain the blessing. So their hearts are far from him. They worship me in vain, Isaiah says, and Jesus tells us. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Now this would have been a stinging indictment to the Pharisees, because obviously they believe that the the law and the prophets support their perspective on things, okay? Jesus goes on. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father and mother is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like this. So that he's basically saying like, hey, look, these traditions that you've erected around the law actually nullify the law. So this Korban thing, just to kind of set that in context for you. Uh, so if somebody wanted to declare their possessions as Korban, what they would do is they would come to the temple and they'd say, hey, I want to give all my possessions of the temple as Korban. But they actually still have use of it for their own purposes okay um so let's say a pious jew did that a few years later his his parents were in need and so they come up they come up to him and they say son can you help us out your mother and i were in need so he would go to the pharisees and he would say hey look i know i gave you guys all my stuff as korban but my parents are in need i would like to take some of it to go help them The pharisees are like no man can't do it you you dedicated it all as korban tough sorry mom and dad are gonna have to figure something out right I mean, isn't that terrible? And that's why Jesus brings up what Moses says about honoring your father and mother. They're, they're literally breaking one of the Ten Commandments in order to observe this tradition. Now, if Jesus would have just stopped here, if he would have just stopped here, I think the, the Jews were, would have been okay. They would have thought to themselves, okay, Okay, I, well, maybe we need to reevaluate this, this tradition thing. Okay, maybe we should go back to square one, kind of take the law, and, and kind of build up from there. I see what you're saying, Jesus. You might have a good point there. But Jesus, he's taking a wrecking ball to this whole thing. He keeps going, okay? Why? Why? Because Jesus' goal is not just to demonstrate that the traditions of the elders are not from God. He also wants to show them that the law isn't to be treated as a means to obedience and a blessed life. Okay? So, here's point B. Jesus believes the law reveals himself. Jesus believes the law reveals himself. Now, this is similar to what the Pharisees believe because they believe the law reveals God, his character, and what is pleasing to him, but Jesus is God. Jesus is his character. Jesus is pleasing to him. Do you see? The law reveals Jesus. Verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now, his disciples, justifiably confused, right? Because they're like, whoa, wait a minute. Nothing that goes into a person defiles him, but what comes out. But yet we have all the, now Jesus, wait a minute. I get the traditions thing. Okay, maybe, maybe we got a little overzealous with that, but doesn't it actually say in the Old Testament, in the written law, that, we're, that we have these purity laws? I mean, isn't there stuff that, that's actually written there by Moses that, that we can't touch and we can't do because it's unclean? Where are you going with this, Jesus? I'm confused. So Jesus gets the disciples to himself, right? And uh, verse 17, after he'd left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he says, are you so dull? don't you just love Jesus? He's like, are you so dull? Don't you get this? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out the body. And in the Greek, the out the body is a little graphic. (laughs) He's basically saying, like, does it even make any sense to you that that can make you defiled? Think about it. Think about it. It doesn't even touch your heart. He goes on. Oh, and in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. That's verse uh, 19, verse 20. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, that statement, thus he declared all foods clean, right? He basically, this whole purity code in the Old Testament, he, he's kind of like pushing it aside. And the, the early church struggles with this, right? Because when you get to Acts, Peter literally has to be given a dream and told, go eat with the Gentiles. It's okay. Eat their food. Eat with them. The, uh, the big ones of the early church get together in Acts 15 and are like, what are we supposed to do about this whole Gentile thing, right? Do, we, do they have to become Jews first before they become Christians? Do they have to obey all these purity laws? Even the book of Galatians, Paul writes this letter to this church trying to sort this issue out. So just because Jesus wiped it off the table here doesn't mean it's no big deal. So you got to understand, these people, he's like pulling the rug out from under them, right? But he's not anti-law either, right? Because if you go back and you look, everything he says, um, evil thoughts, what's the the law to that? Don't have evil thoughts, right? Um, Sexual immorality... Don't be sexually immoral. Okay? Theft, murder, adultery. It sounds like the Ten Commandments almost, right? If you take it and you look at the opposite side of everything he says here. So it's not like he's anti-law. He doesn't want us to go just live however we want, but yet he's tearing down these purity laws for some reason. And you're wondering, what's going on here, Jesus? You know? Because, because you think about it, if I, if I struggle with envy when I'm on Instagram, shouldn't I get rid of my Instagram? Right? That seems right. If I, if, I have, if I have struggles with my computer, shouldn't I, get, shouldn't I get software on there or maybe get rid of my computer? I mean, right, Jesus? I mean, what's wrong with these rituals that help us to obey the law? I, I don't understand. I'm a little confused. Point number two, the heart of man. What is that, the heart of man? What do we find when we sift down? What is our core issue? What is the core thing that needs to be dealt with? Okay, again, there's two perspectives on this. The Pharisees have their perspective. Jesus has his perspective. The Pharisees, the core issue at the heart of man, this is point A, is ritual, cultural, and religious uncleanness. So for the Pharisees, the core issue at the heart of man is ritual, cultural, and religious uncleanness. Now, it's easy to look back 2,000 years and kind of chide the Pharisees for this, right? Because we actually, we actually agree that our core issue is an envy problem, not an Instagram problem. And we see the Pharisees trying to solve this problem with this ritual observances, and we think, you know what, there's, there's clearly something wrong there. So, uh, you know, obviously we're better than that, right? We don't do that. Or do we? Or do we? Think about it. When you, if you have a fight with your spouse, just think about it. Do you go and ask for forgiveness because you, you have seen how selfish you are and how prideful you are and how angry you are? and you have truly repented, like Psalm 51 type of repentance, and you go into your spouse and you say, Honey, you know what? I'm wrong. Please forgive me. Or do you think, My life sucks when she's mad at me. (laughs) So I'm going to make this ritual apology, or I go in, and in my ritual way, I apologize to my wife in order to make everything good. right? Because I really just want to be a morally upright person and obtain the blessing of a happy wife. (laughs) See, we do the exact same thing. What about, let me think about this, what about when our kids come to us and they've misbehaved, they've done something wrong, they've embarrassed us in public, (gasps) they get a bad grade. How do we treat them? Do we treat them as people who are now ritually unclean? Think about it. Think about it. Because they've offended the gods of our culture. They've made us look bad. Or do we treat them as just sinners in need of grace just like we are? See, we do the exact same thing. And here's the one that got me. Yesterday I was at work and uh, I actually work full time for an insurance company as a claims adjuster. And my battery went out because I have everything in the world plugged into it in my car. And so I had to go, and literally everything in the world is plugged into it in my car. And I had to go to this Jiffy Lube in Long Beach to get, um, to get a new battery put in. And I'm, honestly, in Orange County things are nice. It's pretty, Jiffy Lube is big and clean. But in Long Beach it's not. It's not like that. And the folks that were coming in there to get their oil changes in Long Beach were poor. And they were, and they were dirty. And I, honestly, you guys, I felt, I felt unclean. I felt, I felt scared. And I'm not enough where I'm going to run out of there and be like, oh, what's wrong? But like, there, I realized that I do this too. There's this, there's this wickedness in me that separates us by our ritual, our ability to maintain the rituals of our, of our culture. Right? Because because I was blessed with, with parents who who gave me a head start and I was I got an education, you know. But some some people weren't blessed with that. Some people have, have massive struggles, right? And they don't have the ability to maintain our culture's ritual rituals to to compete with the religion of America. They don't have the ability to do that. And so are they unclean? But isn't that how we isn't that how we feel? Isn't that how we respond to them in the depths of our hearts? You know? So we confess our Christianity, but we operate in our daily lives as committed followers of the ritual, cultural, and religious observances of our land. We're committed to comfort, cleanliness, wealth, and all the religious observances that come along with it. Regular dinners out with friends, regular attendance at our kids' sporting events. Not that these things are wrong, but what are we more committed to in the depths of our hearts? Right? Um, And how much are of our lives are spent committed to that. Are we, are we more committed to that than we are to Christianity, which calls us to sacrifice, to love the poor, to love the widow, the fatherless, to give of our time and resources for God's glory? Because see, this is point B. For Jesus, the real issue is lack of moral purity. That's the real issue. And when we see this as our core issue, we know we are no better than anyone else. No matter their ability to maintain the culture's ritual, religious observances. The poor, the downtrodden, they're not lazy people who live in the ghettos, but are people who desperately need what God has graciously given us. We don't apologize to our spouse just to maintain the peace. We allow our spouse to unearth the truth of our sinful hearts. And then we repent. And then, then we discover God's grace, Right? See, by by going through this ritual and trying to maintain this this moral uprightness and this blessing that comes from it, we actually miss God's grace. We We miss what makes Christianity abundant. See, we can love our children for who they are and where they are without being disturbed by how their failure to keep the rituals of our culture's religion reflects back on us. And if we see our core issue as being a lack of moral purity at the core, then we are desperate for Jesus and driven out into this life in sacrificial mission so others will know what he has done for us and what he can do for them. Point number three, the heart of the Syrophoenician woman. So what is it about what happens with this lady that actually helps us kind of understand what's going on here? Okay. Uh, Point A there, the Syrophoenician woman, she is utterly unclean. Right? If we look at the, at the Jewish sort of paradigm that Jesus is operating in, this woman is completely on the outside. She is a Greek. She is a woman. She has likely never kept any of the ritual purity codes in her entire life. Okay? So we're at verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. And he says to her, verse 27, First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take, to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Whoa. Jesus just called her a dog. What do we do with that? That seems pretty harsh, right? If we're liberal scholars, there might be a liberal scholar here, so I I don't want to offend you here, but if you're a liberal scholar, this is kind of easy, right? Because what you say is you say, okay, well, Jesus, he actually had his own cultural and religious and social and racial biases, and, and what makes him virtuous in this passage is he allows this woman to, to he's, he's self-reflective. He's, he sees that. He sees that he's wrong, and, and he lets her change him. And if, if we're looking at this passage in a vacuum, we don't know who this Jesus guy is, that's actually probably the best explanation. But because we know Jesus is God, we know that he knows everything, we know that he acts intentionally in the, the movements of the Spirit, we, we have to find a different way of resolving this tension, right? So one way that conservative scholars do it is they say, oh, okay, well... The Greek for the word dog there, that's actually, it's actually in the diminutive form. So he's not really calling her a dog, he's calling her a little doggy. <laughs> that's my thought exactly. Ha, 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 ha. Because what you're doing is you're taking away one like, blunt, cruel you know, you know, remark, and you're just replacing it with condescension. To me, it doesn't really help Jesus' you know, case here. The other way of doing it is being like, ah, he was just kidding. <laughs> Jesus was just joking around, right? He knows this lady, right? He created her. <laughs> to me, there's nothing in the text that indicates that he's joking. And so that's just sort of a... Uh, just, we import that in there to try to justify Jesus in this. But I'm going to try to justify Jesus in this. But even if you don't buy my justification, I want to put out there two things. Okay? So even, I'm going I'm to justify this. But you might not buy it. So I just want to put that out there. But there's two things I think that we can all agree on from the beginning that helps here. The first thing is, she remained bold. She believed that Jesus was her only hope no matter what he said to her. And isn't that what we need to do? No matter what happens in our lives, no matter what we need to pursue him, just like this woman did. Second thing, her daughter was healed, right? I didn't read verse uh, 29 and 30, but she goes home and her daughter's healed. So, I'm thinking when you get home and your daughter who, I mean, I have two kids. It's like if I had one of them sit, my son recently chopped off his finger. He fell on his scooter and chopped off his finger. And I was running red lights, literally, to get to the hospital. Until my wife said, um, you don't want us all to go to the hospital. And I was like, okay, you're right. But I mean, I would have done anything for him. So I get where she's, where she's coming from here, you know? And to get home and, and to see her daughter in her right mind, she could have cared less what Jesus said. Okay, and so Jesus had to have known all that. And so I think that, that, that's something we can all agree on. But I think if we see this statement in light of what we've just read about in the first 23 verses, and we realize that that's all about cultural, ethnic, and religious boundaries, and we kind of look at this c- conflict or this you know, interaction between Jesus and this woman that way, we're going to find some pretty awesome things there. First, he, he, him calling her a dog uh, that fell right into the expectations of his disciples. That would be like like I'm thinking I kept thinking of like Palestine and uh, and Israel, you know, and and for if like a, if an, a Palestinian was in Israel and they were calling a Palestinian a, a dog, like just the, the embittered relations they have between each other, no one in Israel would have thought anything of that, right? And so Jesus is playing right into these expectations that the disciples have. And so she wasn't just humbling herself before Jesus the man. She was also humbling herself before the reality that God had revealed himself and saved the world through the Jews. Can you imagine a Palestinian doing that? Just what we know of that conflict over there? They would almost let their child die before they would go into Israel and beg a religious leader there to save them. I mean, this is what this woman is doing here. So Jesus was basically asking her, do you buy into this whole thing too? are you more committed to your ritual and cultural and religious boundaries than you are to me? Or, or are you willing to, to break out of those? This would be like Richard Dawkins, honestly, coming in here and being like, I need me some Jesus. I, I'm, my, my whole commitment to this atheistic thing and the scientific thing and everything I've said about Christianity, I, there's something now that I need so desperately and I finally believe that Jesus can give that to me. That, I mean that's literally the the, the boundary she's crossing to come to him right now, and so then in that we see what makes her clean. and this is point B: she is made clean by faith. she is every bit she has every bit of uncleanness inside her that any other human does, but there is something even deeper, and that is faith in Jesus Christ and that is why when we look inside our hearts and we see that envy, we see that immorality, we see that pride right and That's not the deepest thing in us. If you've come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, the deepest thing in you is Him and faith in Him and belief that what He says about you is true. And that's the most difficult thing to do, though, right? It's the most difficult thing to believe that what He says about us is true, that we are perfectly righteous. Just like that song said, I am faultless. That's so difficult to believe. And for many people in our culture, crossing that boundary is so difficult, but how do we encourage them to do that? How do we woo our culture into crossing that boundary? We have to cross it first. We have to see how embedded we are and how, how much we've incorporated Jesus into our specific ritual, right? Our specific American religion of success and comfort. See, we have to be willing, just like Jesus did when he came after us, to cross that boundary first. And then our culture our culture will think, what is going on here? I saw this video recently um, about this woman who married, a, uh, she dated this man for 10 months and then and then he got into a car accident and had a brain injury. And so they went through a couple years where she was side by side with him, helping him through this. He was confined to a wheelchair. He couldn't communicate for the first part of it and she married him in. And, and what I read, it talked about all these people going on and all these non-Christians going on and just being like, just baffled by this, right? Because if, if I mean, I know me when I got married, honestly, my expectations, I, I had things that I wanted for me, you know? And, to, and to, to marry intentionally out of just pure self-sacrifice, for us to choose to do something other than our normal religious observances to our culture's religion, to us, for us to set aside those things, and to reach out into this world and sacrifice and to give up these things, risk not having you know, all, this, all this stuff that we feel is so important to love other people, that's terrifying. In fact, it feels like we're going to be deprived, doesn't it? It feels like we're not going to have everything we need if we do that. You know, because I've got to make sure that my house payment, I've got to make sure all these things, I want my kids to have a good life, I want them to, to be morally upright so they can obtain the blessing, right? Don't we? Or do we want them to know Jesus? Don't we want them to know Jesus more than anything else? But we're afraid that we're going to miss out. We're afraid that that it's going to be somehow something less. But see, this woman was satisfied with the crumbs. She was satisfied with the crumbs. See, she knew that even a crumb from Jesus was more than enough, more than she could ever hope or imagine. If you look in Mark chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He takes bread and he breaks it and turns it into 12 baskets of crumbs. Right? See, a crumb from Jesus is more than we'd ever hope or imagine. And then it's sandwiched between Mark chapter 8, where he feeds the 4,000 and he takes more bread, turns it into seven baskets of crumbs. Don't you see? Don't you see that Jesus pursue him, chase after him, because he pursued you. He left the ultimate, perfect ritual religion between him and the Trinity up in heaven where everything was perfect, where he was perfectly moral and he had all the blessings of communion with the Father. And he came down here to chase after us. And and I don't think Jesus got a crumb. He was sitting on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was hanging on the cross saying, I thirst. And so when we feel like God has forsaken us, when we feel like we thirst, when we feel like he's calling us to live a life where it's going to be just crumbs, we can remember that Jesus did more than that for us because he loves us so much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, um, you have pursued us because you love us, because you want us to find Jesus, the heart of the law, so we can know him, so we can experience eternal life, so we can have it now, God. I pray, Lord, that we would not be satisfied with anything less than intimate communion with you and your son. I pray, God, that there are are not things in this life that are more important to us than Christ. And God, and if they are, show them to us. Help us to repent. Help us to see that everything we could hope for or imagine is only found in you. God, I think of that man who's living this life and his, his wife married him. And he's crippled. God he we're we're all we're like him. All of us are like him, God. And you married us. We had nothing to offer you, God, but you came down and in your grace you chose us. And so I pray, God, that be, that, that reality that reality would burst out of our hearts and motivate us out into mission, God. I pray that reality would burst in our hearts and motivate us to just be with you, the lover of our souls in prayer.